Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. All right, Christmas. Second day of Christmas. We got 12 of them. And Christmas is the annual invitation for us to journey into the mystery. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of a Father's only Son. The phenomenon of wonder is uniquely human. Cows and cats share the phenomenon of being with us, but cows and cats do not experience wonder as we do. There are two things that evoke wonder in us the beautiful, And the mysterious wonder. Maybe it's evoked by an awesome sunset or an awesome sunrise, as I saw this morning. It can be evoked by a masterpiece of art, the mystery of a newborn baby, the mysteries of the cosmos. I'm pretty excited about that web telescope that got launched yesterday. It's going to fly for a month and a million miles and then give us a look into the universe like we've never had before. A life blind to beauty and immune to mystery is a life devoid of wonder. And that can only be described as some kind of spiritual disaster. Children by nature inhabit a world of wonder. We had our eight grandchildren over yesterday for Christmas. And just pay a little bit of attention. You can tell that most of the time they inhabit a different world than we do, even though we're living in the same space. Children inhabit a world of wonder. The Enchanted Life of Innocence. A ladybug on a leaf. A puddle in the street. An unexplored closet. Christmas for sure. These all have more than enough mystery and beauty to awake wonder in a child. A healthy childhood is the wonder of Eden discovered in your own backyard. And then we grow up. And the backyard becomes little more than a lawn to be mowed. The tragedy of growing up is not that we grow older, but that we risk losing our capacity for childlike wonder. As children, we dream of growing up and finding adventure 
and end up finding a job. As children, we're hungry to grow up. We're in a hurry to grow up. We're, you know, you ask, how old are you? I'm six and a half. They're going to put that half in there. Look, folks, I'm 62 until the day I'm 63. Ain't no 62 and a half about it. The little child, how old are you? Six and a half. Because they're in a hurry to get to seven. Why are children in a hurry to grow up? Well, because they imagine that adulthood brings unimagined freedom. They, they understand that there are restrictions upon childhood. And they can't just always do as they please. You know, ice cream for breakfast, stuff like that. And it is true that with adulthood, there comes some more freedom but there also comes the grind of responsibility that can kill wonder. Can I, can I quote Pink Floyd on the second day of Christmas? Yes, yes I can. When I was a child, I caught a fleeting glimpse out of the corner of my eye. I turned to look, but it was gone. I cannot put my finger on it now. The child is grown, the dream is gone, and I have become comfortably numb. That's a sad song. It's got a great guitar solo, but it's a sad song. Most people just take this comfortably numb loss of wonder as an inevitable loss, and they get on with the business of living. But is this the point of living, to soldier on long after the thrill of living is gone? Life with all the wonder crushed out of it isn't real life. It's life compressed into mere existence. It's life in the pressure machine. Art, at its best, is an attempt to recapture the wonder vanished with our lost innocence. Last Sunday, Perry and I went to the Van Gogh Alive exhibit at Starlight in Kansas City. Whew, that was good for my soul. Vincent Van Gogh, he knew something about how to help us recapture the wonder because art in its best is an attempt to recapture the wonder that is lost with our loss of innocence. It's certainly, good art, is a better way of attempting to recapture wonder and cure the problem of boredom. That's what boredom is. Boredom is the loss of wonder. It's, art is a better way of trying to deal with the problem of boredom than surrendering our soul to mindless entertainment and chemical sedation. But I want to suggest that ultimately... Ultimately, the loss of wonder is a spiritual catastrophe. Whatever we mean theologically by a fall, it does seem to entail the loss of wonder. I mean, for a being to have the capacity to wonder at beauty and mystery, and then to lose that capacity must be some kind of spiritual catastrophe, some sort of inner collapse. 
has happened. We were born with it. I mean, just pay attention to an infant. They're just going from wonder to wonder to wonder to wonder to wonder. And it carries through childhood, but at some point something seems to happen. Have we exhausted the potential for wonder in this cosmos? No, we haven't. Something's happened within. Some sort of collapse has occurred within. We've lost that. Now once the loss of wonder begins to predominate our being, the problem grows worse. It becomes exponential. So that with each passing decade, the soul incapable of wonder becomes more jaded and more cynical. I mean, cynicism arises from the loss of wonder. So how do we avoid ending up a jaded, cynical curmudgeon in old age? How do we avoid ending up just an old grump? Well, this is the question that I was musing on at age 44 in 2003. Nature. Nature can be and should be a source of unending wonder. If we can awaken to it. I mean, it's there, but we have to wake up to it. One of the reasons I like to visit Rocky Mountain National Park several times a year is it serves as a kind of alarm clock for me. It tends to wake me up. If I'm, if I'm too much oblivious to wonder... Rocky Mountain National Park has the tendency to, to wake me up. It still does. I've been going there for 30 years. And still, when I see that panorama of all of these mountains that I first saw three decades ago, I mean, my, upon seeing those mountains, you know what I did? You know what the phenomenon in me was? I wonder what it's like up there. And so that's why I had to go climb them. And maybe it's wonder. Why did you climb all those mountains? I said, because I, I wondered what it was like up there. I had to go find out. June 24th, 2003. We were out there with our family, as we have done every year, for our annual family mountain vacation. We're staying down there on Fall River, one of those little condos. There'd been a big, there's, you know, lots of times there's afternoon thunderstorms, but one, this was a bigger than usual one. And it was right near sunset. And I knew what would happen. I said, it'll drive all the people out. They'll all come down Trail Ridge Road to get away. And since the sun's going down, they won't go back up. And that's when I thought, I'm going up there. And so I drove up to Forest Canyon Outlook, 11,713 feet, way up there above tree line. Nobody was there. Not a soul, it was me. I got out, walked out onto the tundra, got a ways out. I couldn't see my car anymore and just out on the tundra. You could still hear the thunder rumbling off in the east, but I was looking to the west at a sunset over the Never Summer Mountains. Greatest name for a mountain range ever, the Never Summer Mountains. I just sat down on that tundra 
And I began to experience wonder in a very deep way. The sunset was exceptionally beautiful because of the thunderstorm that had just gone by. And while sitting, watching, watching the sunset over the Never Summer Mountains, seven bull elk ambled up the ridge where I was. You know, at that time of year, the, the cows and calves are together and the, and the bulls are together. And there were seven of these bull elk. They were aware of my presence and they didn't care. And they just ambled up onto the tundra, onto the ridge right where I was. And just as the orange orb of the setting sun touched the snow-capped peaks of the Never Sun and mountains, the largest up lifted its head and its antlers, like a 12-point rack of antlers, formed this perfect frame for this absolutely awe-inspiring, wonder-inducing vista. And I felt it, a, a, a shudder, a shiver, a thrill go through my soul. And I prayed, not just a, not a, not a prayer from here, but a prayer from here, deep. It came from deep within me, a deep prayer. I prayed and I said, God, see, I'd been thinking all this week. I'd been thinking on my hikes. I'd been thinking about the problem of it's the loss of wonder that leads a soul to become jaded and cynical. And they no longer really enjoy life. They just get by. And I was thinking about that problem. And then I have this moment where there's like an adrenaline shot of wonder. And I'm fully awake and aware of how beautiful life is and can be in this moment in nature with the sun and the mountains and the elk and all of that. And I prayed from as deep a place as I could. I said, God, I want to live my life in a state of wonder. And God spoke to me. Now, I'm going to be careful here because if you know me, I'm not a God told me, God told me, God told me, God told me kind of guy. I would, I would much rather say, while musing, while praying, while thinking, I had this thought, maybe, maybe some of it's from God. That's how I would rather, most of the time, I want to be very careful about that. But there are, but there are those moments when it's not that. When God does speak. I've had, you know, half a dozen, maybe a couple of more, no more than that in my life, where there wasn't any doubt. So when I prayed, God, I want to live my life on a, State of wonder, I, I didn't expect a, re a reply. I just was throwing it out there as an expression of what my soul was deeply sensing. I didn't expect a response, but I got one. It was like this. God, I want to live my life in a state of wonder. This is the greatest wonder of all. The word became flesh and lived among us. Told that. I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't looking for that. This is the greatest wonder of all. The Word became flesh and lived among us. Can I tell you something? That was a significant turning point in my life. June 24th, 2003, 18 and a half years ago. Plato said, All philosophy begins with wonder. He's right. 
And the same can be said for theology. Of course, of course, all philosophy ultimately turns in to theology. But that's another conversation. Plato says all philosophy begins with wonder. It's true. And I will say all theology begins with wonder or at least all good theology. All good theology begins with wonder. And I took that word from the Lord seriously. I mean, God broke through with revelation. Said, God, I want wonder. He said, all right, this is the greatest wonder of all, BZ. The word became flesh. And so I took that word from the Lord seriously. And I began to meditate on the incarnation as the golden key to wonder. I began to meditate on the incarnation. But I meditate, I mean... I, I, yeah, I began to read some things on some theology on the incarnation, but more, I was more influenced by it's what I would, you know, as, as you lay yourself down to sleep, your mind can just run everywhere or you can send it in a place. And I would begin just to send my mind in the area of wondering about the word made flesh. When I had time just to think, it's what I would think about. If I'm on a hike and you kind of can just, you don't have to think a lot about a lot. You can think about what you want to. I would think about the wonder of the word made flesh. In the beginning was the word, the logos. Maybe understood as God's understanding of God and all that is. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then the word became flesh. God became one of us. What if God was one of us? Who did that song? Was that Joan Osborne or was that? I always get mixed up who did that one. John Os, John, Joan Osborne. I remember, I remember, you know, the kind of Christian that always just looks for an opportunity to be offended. They were offended to that song. What if God was like one of us, like a slob on the bus or something like that? And they thought it was, you know, sacrilegious. I thought it was a serious meditation on the word becoming flesh. The word became flesh. God became human. And the more I meditated on that, the deeper I found myself going into wonder. I was recapturing wonder. And by the way, recapturing wonder is part of salvation. If the loss of wonder is a part of the fall, then recapturing wonder is a part of salvation. All right, so this was 18 and a half years ago. At that time... I was still speaking a lot. Well, I was traveling a lot and speaking in other churches, being invited to come and speak. But at that time, 18 and a half years ago, it was all probably 100% charismatic churches. And so that was the world I was entirely in. But something had happened there at Forest Canyon Overlook, June 24, 2003. And I was pressing into wonder and the wonder of the incarnation. So I would go and I would, I would be with these pastors, you know, preaching their church. They'd take me out to dinner afterwards. And they, you know, you're going to have conversation. And I would just kind of ignore everything they said. And I'd just look at them and I'd go, what do you think about the incarnation? And I found that most of them didn't. They weren't interested in a theological conversation. The pastors, but they weren't interested in a theological conversation. 
They want to talk about the business of the church and church growth and being cool or what stupid watch you're going to buy. Or... And that was my first inkling that I needed to move on. And by within a year, I had moved on from that world. I moved on because I just, I know I'm speaking a little bit harsh here, but I just didn't want to spend my life with pastors who weren't interested in theology. Which is another way of saying, I know this is hard, but I wasn't interested in doing life with pastors that weren't interested in God. Hans Urs von Balthasar, later on I found him. Oh, I like that guy. Not just his name, I like him. Hans Urs von Balthasar says, all the kitsch to be found in the Christian life and Christian art arises from a failure to take the humanity of Christ seriously. Kitsch. That's a hard word to understand. Once you get it, it's helpful. I can give you a definition, but it's hard to get. But it's important, I think. Kitsch. It's a word. It's art that gives immediate Cheap gratification based mostly on sentimentalism. Precious moments and paintings of dogs playing poker passed off as art. That's kitsch. It's the opposite of art that makes you think and ponder and wonder to get at its meaning. Kitsch is a parody of beauty and a mockery of mystery. And kitsch Christianity is what we're left with if we don't take the incarnation seriously. If we don't take time to go, wait a minute, God, the creator God, the omnipotent, infinite, eternal God became one of us, became us in Jesus Christ. All right, that's the starting point for all theology that's not going to be kitsch. Christian theology begins with wondering at the incarnation and taking it seriously. Christian theology begins with the questions that wonder asks about the word made flesh. So we have this proclamation given to us. The word became flesh. It's an announcement. An announcement of a revelation. The word, the logos, God, the word became flesh. And then that should evoke, I wonder. Does, does that mean, does that, mean that, that, that Jesus Christ is half God and half man? No, it does not. It means that he is fully God and fully man. And if that's a mystery, so be it. Hypostatic union, you know. Well, does this mean that Jesus is, is a little bit lower than God the Father? No. Completely equal with the Father. One with the Father. Well, we wonder, I mean, why did God join humanity? To heal humanity. We had fallen. Something had gone wrong. The solution was, God says, I'll become one of them and heal them by pouring myself into them. <sighs> Athanasius said, God became as we are that we might become as he is. John 1, 16, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. In Christ, God pours his fullness into humanity. 
Think of, a, think of an hourglass. You know, an hourglass, two glass spheres, one upper, one lower, connected with a point where the two spheres connect and a single grain of sand can pass through. The upper sphere, let the upper sphere be God. Let the lower sphere be humanity. Let that single point that connects the two be Christ. And God is pouring, pouring, pouring himself through Christ into humanity. But here's where the illustration gets crazy. You have to imagine, you can't but try, that the upper sphere is infinite. Not very large, infinite. So that no matter how much God pours of God's self into humanity through Christ, God is never diminished. He loses nothing. Gregory the Great said it like this. In the mystery of the incarnation, God increases what is ours without diminishing what is his. Wonder. The sense of surprise that makes childhood magical and every morning a Christmas. As we lose wonder in adulthood, we miss it deeply, perhaps more than we know. Christianity is an invitation back into the wonder, the infinite wonder of God. Because what else can sustain wonder for a lifetime than the wonder of God? God alone is majestic enough and infinite enough to sustain everlasting fascination. And it's one of the primary keys to genuine happiness. And the best place to enter the wonder of divinity is through the door of incarnation. So we come to Bethlehem. And we find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. This is God. God. And so we wonder, well, if this is, if this is God, what a wonder this is. For we will have the wonder of omnipotence learning to walk. Of omniscience learning to read. We will wonder, well, how does he come about self-awareness of who he is? In that moment, is he, he's wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Is that what he's thinking? Here I am, God, very God, very God, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Can't even walk or talk. No, it's fully human. Has no more self-awareness than any other newborn, he's just now into his own creation, experiencing the wonder of every infant, but he grows. He grows in wisdom and in the knowledge of God. We don't know when it happens, if it happens suddenly or slowly. We know that age, by age 12, the word in adolescence can say, I must be about my father's business. And by the time he's 30, he hears the voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. In Christ, the Word made flesh, we find a God who labors, a God who sweats, a God who sleeps, a God who weeps, 
a God who bleeds, a God who dies and goes down into death that he might liberate us all from the dominion of death. And this God gives us his flesh and blood and the bread of wine. This is the mystery of the Eucharist. Come, let's enter the wonder. Stand with me. Let's confess first the mystery of our faith in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now join with me in confessing our sins and receiving the Lord's forgiveness. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith in you, who have little, you who have been here often, and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you.